Our scripture reading today is from John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome again to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here on our staff, and we're really glad that you're here with us this morning in, uh, in celebrating in this. And before we dive into this passage that Haile Kay read for us so beautifully, uh, I want to take a moment here and just pause and, and tell you a little bit about something that's actually starting uh, next week as a whole church family. Uh, we've been talking about this a little bit, but um, I just want to keep it in front of us and, and let you know about it if you're not familiar with it yet. And we're calling it E90. And that, again, that's starting next Sunday. And it's a practice we're doing together as a church where we're going to choose nine people— in our lives, it could be family members, friends, coworkers, classmates, um, whatever it might be. But nine people in our lives who, who don't know Jesus or, or maybe aren't a part of a church family uh, in some way. And we want to commit to praying for those people uh, for the next 90 days and just take 90 seconds each day and then, and then pray for them uh, for those, those 90 days. Again, we're starting that kind of 90-day period of prayer starting next Sunday, and we have some resources uh, for you to help uh, journey on that together. And so throughout E90, we're going to have devotionals uh, that are going to be delivered through the Formed Life. And so, again, if you're newer with us, this is your first Sunday, you're like, I don't know what the Formed Life is. Uh, the Formed Life is a, a kind of a devotional um, training, equipping tool that we've developed as a church. And so if you go to theforms.life, you can read all about that. You can put your email in there, and you'll get a, a devotional sent to you in your inbox each day. Um, but we always print a companion journal that goes along with those, those digital resources, and that looks like like this for this season. So uh, these are free. Pick one up uh, at the back. Make sure you have that. And it will take you through those 90 days. So right there in the front of that journal, um, there is a place where you can write the names of the people you're praying for. It even has a little grid of the 90 days where you can kind of check off um, as you're working through that. Um, And then there's just lots of great resources throughout this to help you engage with scripture, encouragement, um, it's, again, it's a really well done book that our communications team did an amazing job putting this together. So I encourage you to pick up one of those. Also, there are bookmarks back there as well, which is just kind of a real concise version of what E90 is all about, a place where you can, again, jot the names of the people you're praying for. You can keep this handy uh, in your Bible um, or wherever you might see that on a regular basis. So make sure you pick those things up on your way out if you didn't grab them already on your way in. Uh, another piece of this as well is we want to be collecting stories. So as we're praying together, we really believe that that God hears and answers prayers. And so there's a way that you can sign up to receive just a weekly text message from us. It'll just be an encouragement. How is it going? But also there will always be a question there. Just tell us a story. Maybe you've been praying for someone, you got to have a conversation with them and just share a little bit about, you know, this is how God has really uh, been at work in my life and how he's helped me in this kind of a situation. Or you were able to offer, hey, you know, someone tells you about some struggle they're having in their life and say, I'm going to be praying for you. Um, that kind of thing. So just stories to tell. So if you are already signed up for the Formed Life and we have your phone number, you'll get those texts automatically. 
You can always opt out of them if you don't want them. Um, but if you're not, or you haven't gotten a text yet, um, and you'd want to be a part of that, you can just text, uh, I think I've got a slide here, just text E90 uh, to that number, 913-379-4440, and you can sign up for those text messages as well. And again, you can opt out anytime, just like one text message a week. So just another way that we're trying to encourage you, encourage all of us in this together. So again, we officially start that next week, and during that 90-day period on Sundays, we'll actually take the 90 seconds during our service to pause and pray for those people, and we're eager to see um, what God might do in the midst of this. Well, now uh, let's turn our attention uh, to the Gospel of John and uh, to this passage that we heard read, and let me pray over us as we, as we begin. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on a true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts may hear and discern your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your will, cherish it, live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, remember, I wonder who here remembers the Magic Eye books. Do you guys remember these Magic Eye posters in the, in the books? Uh, the first one was published in the, Thomas, Thomas knows, uh, the first one was published uh, in 1993 in the United States. Actually, I think in, maybe in Japan they were uh, available earlier, but 1993, I was 11 years old. I remember very clearly, I think my cousin uh, had one the first time I saw one. And if you're not familiar with the Magic Eye thing, so it's got this kind of crazy picture, but if you sort of stick your nose right next to the page and you slowly bring it and you kind of cross your eyes and just the right way, you'll see a, a 3D image kind of hidden in that picture. And it, it's, it's really cool if you're able to do it uh, and make your eyes work in that way. Um, and I, again, I love these as a kid, and I was reading um, about this. You, yeah, there's pictures. Like you, that image of the dolphins are, are hidden in there if you look at it in just the right way. And I was reading an article this week about the magic eye phenomenon. And again, this was 1983, no one had a smartphone. Uh, you couldn't just carry a laptop around and pull these images up. So if you want to see these images, like they had these mall kiosks. Do you remember what the mall was? Uh, they had these mall kiosks where you could go and they would have the posters and the books and people would kind of gather around and you'd see people looking at it and then you kind of hear someone cry out like, oh, I see it, I see it. Um, and then other people are like, I don't see it. Um, I wonder if any of us ever who were around during that period like faked seeing it, like, Oh, yeah, I see it too. Oh, what is it? It's a tree bear dolphin. Uh, um. But the whole magic eye principle idea is that there's, there's something that is hidden there, kind of in plain sight. And if you use the right technique, if you do the right thing, if you follow the right procedure, that you'll be able to see it and get it and kind of have this moment of epiphany. And, and you know, I think that that's often how we approach trying to find God. And often in our cultural context, what religion says about how you find God, that if you find the right religious system, if you get the right teacher, you follow the right teacher, you um, do the right practices, then we'll find God and have a relationship with him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, I'm here with a friend. This church thing's kind of new to me. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I'm not really that interested. I don't even know if I believe in a spiritual realm or a personal God at all. I'm really just interested in kind of finding a comfortable, like, good life. I just want to live a good life. 
But again, living that kind of good life, however you define it, it's still a lot about technique and effort, right? You've got to find the right job. Maybe that means you have to go to a particular kind of school, and, and maybe in that for you is finding the right spouse or you know, kind of partner to do this journey with you so you can build this life that you want. You've got to get the right trainer, the right coach, whatever it might be, to get the life that you long for. But either way, whether it's a more religious or a more kind of secular approach to trying to find that, either way it's on us, right? The right technique, the right people, the right teacher, and then I can find this. And you know, that was not all that different from when John was first writing these words about 2,000 years ago. Because it's a human condition. Like we all, as humans, want to find a sense of transcendence and beauty and meaning and purpose, whether that's in the gods or in some other kind of way. People always ask that question. How can I know God? How can I find God? How can I find his will? How can I get the good life? And John actually makes a pretty profound claim in this passage this morning. And that is this, that finding God isn't about mastering a technique. It's about knowing a person. That finding God isn't about mastering a technique, but it's about knowing a person and this is the, the claim, if I could summarize it in really like just one sentence, that what John is communicating in these verses is that you cannot know God without Jesus. And you might jot that down, even if you don't agree with it yet, you might jot that down, because I think that's a good summary of what John is going to say. And before we reject it, I want us to try to understand why is John making that claim this morning. So that's what we're going to do this morning, is look at this claim that, that John says here that you cannot know God without Jesus. And I want us to understand why he's making that claim, because if it's true— that's actually the most beautiful reality in all the universe. That, that Jesus became one of us to make God known to us. That Jesus became one of us to make God known to us. And that's kind of the, the, the statement we're going to unpack this morning. The first thing we see in verse 14 of John chapter 1. If you uh, haven't pulled out one of those pew Bibles or if you uh, haven't pulled it up on your phone, I encourage you, I'd love for you to kind of follow along with me looking at this text. So again, if you're newer to the Bible, uh, there's two big chunks in the Bible. There's the, the Old Testament, the New Testament. New Testament's about two-thirds of the way through, so you can kind of flip there, and then we're in the Gospel of John, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right on the first page of the Gospel of John. You kind of look at those little superscript numbers and find verse 14. And in verse 14, John says this, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son who, sorry, from the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And again, this is G John making this incredible claim here that the God of the universe, who is spirit, who's not matter, who is separate from his creation, who is created and is something totally distinct from it, has actually entered into his creation, has become a human being. The word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, who is God, became a human being, one of us. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in the message, in his paraphrase. He says this, he says, and the word of God, uh, I think I've got a slide of this here, the, the, in the message he says, yeah, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's a great actually way of getting at what John is saying here. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, came and lived with us. Why? 
Why did God do this? Why did God become a human? Well, Philip Yancey, a number of years ago, wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And in that book, he tells a, a great story to try to get at this. And it was, it's about his caring for, he had a saltwater aquarium, saltwater fish. And it was as he was caring for his fish in this saltwater aquarium, aquarium that this, this idea of John 1.14, of God becoming flesh, the word being made flesh and dwelling with us, that it really clicked for him. I understood why. Because he describes this. He's like, I had these these fish, and and every time I try to care for them, though, I go to feed them, or test the water, or clean the water, or put new things in. Every time I try to care for them, they would always just run in terror, right? They would swim away every time they'd see me approaching the tank, or if I put my hand in, or I'd open the lid to, to drop in the food. They would always run and hide. They were terrified of me. He's like, at some point, I, I realized this is how, as human beings, like, we relate to God. He's like, I'm God to these fish. And even when I sort of disrupt their world, even to care for them, even for their good, they're just, they're just terrified of me. I'm this totally other being that they can't understand, they can't speak to, they don't, I'm just massive, and all they are is afraid of me. Again, even when I'm, I'm caring for them, trying to do good things for them, making sure they stay alive, they only ever saw me as being just this terror to them. And then he writes this. He says, to change their perceptions, I began to see would require a form of incarnation. I would have to become a fish and speak to them in the language that they can understand. So, so this means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the creator of all things, so wanted you to know him, so desired a relationship with you, loved you so much that he said, I am going to become one of you so that you can know me face to face. And Jesus became a human. And not just mostly human, not just he looked like a human, not just he kind of put on a human suit for a little while, but he became fully, truly human, 100% God, 100% human. That the reigning king of heaven stepped down from his throne and became a helpless human baby. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that the God of the universe became not just a human. He didn't just show up as, as a 25-year-old guy. He, he came as a baby, a helpless human child. This actually brings us to the next movement in the passage that we see here, and this is in, in John 1.18. And, and the reason that he came as a human is so that he could make God known to us. As one of us, Jesus makes God known to us. And this is such a key piece that we have here. We're going to unpack that more in just a moment. But this idea of God becoming flesh with us actually has these long roots back to the Old Testament. This isn't a new idea. Because God's plan was always to dwell with his people from the very beginning. And this imagery that he uses in this uh, passage of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, so that you could translate that most literally as he tabernacled, he, he set up a tent with us. I mean, that's the, that's the most literal language, that Jesus became flesh and he set up a tent among us. And that calls his readers back to the Old Testament, to the very first pages of Scripture in Genesis and then in the book of Exodus as well. Because God's plan was always to have people who were made in his image, who were going to rule and reign over the earth with him. 
that God gives human beings a special commission that they're made in his image to represent him and to rule over creation with him. And in the garden where God placed those first image-bearing humans, God dwelled with them. Heaven and earth overlapped in that garden. It was the first temple in a way. It was the place where God and humanity met together. And it was a beautiful place where that relationship was free and open and God knew his people and there was a deep satisfaction in this. But then something happens, right, in the story where Adam and Eve choose to say, we're going to actually try to rule on our own apart from God, define good and evil on our own apart from him, pursue wisdom in our own way. That was the temptation of the evil one in the garden. And they took that temptation, they gave into it to pursue their own wisdom rather than trusting God for his wisdom, and they are exiled out of the garden. But God doesn't stop pursuing this plan of having an image-bearing human who will rule with him and having a place where his presence can dwell with human beings. So when you get to the book of Exodus and God brings his people out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness, he brings them to Mount Sinai, he makes this promise with them, and he gives them these detailed plans to make a tent called the tabernacle where his presence will once again dwell with his people. It's interesting too, as you look at the tabernacle descriptions, which are these long passages in Exodus. If you're trying to read the Bible through in a year this year, you'll know when you get there. There's long descriptive passages in Exodus. But notice that when you get there in your Bible reading at some point, if you're doing that, the imagery is this, it's a lot of imagery of plants and fruit and angels. It's all Garden of Eden imagery. This is becoming a new sort of portable Eden space where God's presence can dwell with his people. And eventually King David uh, sets up Jerusalem as the capital. His son Solomon builds a permanent building that is this place. What John is telling us here as he's using this language is that Jesus is the true and better tabernacle, the true and better temple, that the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's people can be in his presence, is Jesus. That he's the place where God's people dwell with him. This is a great picture of what John is saying is happening in Jesus, is that heaven and earth are coming together once again in the person of Jesus that as good as the tabernacle and as good as the temple was, as good as the law and the teaching of Moses were, something is better that has come. And that's actually what verses 16 and 17 are all about. If you look down a little bit further in the passage, John writes this, and from his, and that's from the word, from Jesus, from his fullness, we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law or the teaching or the instruction was given through Moses. So that's that book of Exodus, this promise made at Sinai, all of these, this, in the biblical story, this, this, this law, this instruction, this covenant was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And again, Moses' point, or rather John's point, is not that the law of Moses, the teaching of Moses, the tabernacle, the temple, that, that those were bad, that they were not gracious, that they were not good. On the contrary, that those were expressions of God's goodness and grace, that God made this place where his people could dwell with him, and he gave them this, this set of instructions on how they could live with a holy God. That was a really good thing. He's saying something even better is here in Jesus. Because again, John is writing both to Gentiles, but also to Jewish men and women as well. And I love what one expert on the Gospel of John points out here. He says, rather than offend the Gospel's Jewish audience, this verse is designed to draw it in. Essentially, he's saying, if you want a more gracious demonstration of God's covenant, love, and faithfulness, the evangelist tells his readers that it's found in Jesus Christ. 
Because I think sometimes we have this mentality, whether we're Christians or not, that there's sort of two gods. There's a God in the Old Testament who's kind of angry and vengeful and grumpy. And then that God like meets Jesus in the New Testament and he becomes a Christian. And then all of a sudden he's full of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. But that's, that's not at all the story that the Bible tells that God is always and has always been full of grace and truth and mercy and covenant-keeping love because Jesus is the expression of that. But in the person of Jesus, you get this, this even more grace and truth than came through Moses. So this means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, again, so wanted you to know him. He became a human being. So now down to verse 18, where John writes this. He says, no one has ever seen God. And then he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again, this is a tricky verse because it's like you've got to read this again. It says, no one has ever seen God. Then the ESV puts a semicolon there. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John's point is that, that no one has ever seen God. God in his unveiled glory, but the one who is at the Father's side, that's the way of talking about the Word, that's the way of talking about Jesus, that Jesus has made him known. This is where I'm getting this language that you cannot know God without Jesus, that, the, that God, no one has ever seen him in all of his glory and, and, and who he is, but Jesus, the Word, the one who is at the Father's side, who has now come in the flesh, he has made him known. Now, if you are familiar with the Bible, and you've read some of the Old Testament, you might scratch your head a little bit here and think, okay, John is saying here, no one's ever seen God, but you know, Bill, you've talked about Moses a couple of times. Wasn't there that moment, I can't remember, a story with Moses and like God's glory, like passed by, he didn't get to see, it was God's back, but like you passed by him on that mountain. Or what about Isaiah? Like, he's in the temple and he has this vision of God's glory. The train of his robe is filling the temple and he gets this vision. And so what does it mean that no one's ever seen God. Doesn't it seem like there's moments in the Old Testament where people have seen God? And I think the, the I don't know, this is the best way, but one way to think about this is it's almost like watching a sunset. If you look at a picture of the sunset, it's like you can ask the question, are you seeing, do you see the sun in this picture? And it's like, well, yes and no, right? Because you're, the sun in this picture is already below the horizon. You're not actually seeing the flaming ball in this picture, right? You're seeing the light of the sun. And I think this is, as people had glimpses of God in the Old Testament of his glory. This is, it's like they're watching a sunset. They're getting sort of part of the radiance of his glory, but they're not looking directly into his unveiled glory. And even for us as humans, right, we can look at a, a sunset. We can watch a sunset for 30 minutes and all its beauty and it's wonderful, it's amazing. But if you were to stare at the sun at noon with no clouds for 30 minutes without blinking, you would go blind. Right? Like you would permanently damage your eyes if you did that. The visions in the Old Testament, they, they are a picture, a true picture of God, but they're not the unveiled glory of who God is. The only way we get that is in the Word made flesh. In Jesus, in God become human. And Jesus, the Word, again, this is, there's so much here in this idea of the Word, and we looked at this a little bit last week, but the Word is the, it's the full explanation, it's the full story. In verse 18, where he says, at the end, he has made him known, that idea of made him known, it's, it's literally kind of this idea of he's told, he's narrated the whole story. He's told the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He's not left anything out. 
When we encounter Jesus, and that's what we're going to be doing all through the Gospel of John this winter, when we encounter Jesus, we are encountering the fullness, the true expression, the full story with nothing left out about who God is. It's almost like Jesus, in, in a way, is sort of like eclipse glasses. You remember when we had the eclipse a few years back and you get those glasses and it, it would allow you to look at the sun without being blinded. Jesus enables us to see all of who God is without being blinded, without being destroyed. But why can't we see God? Maybe you've wondered that. Why, why can't we just see God in his unadulterated, unfiltered glory? Well, I mean, there's two things. I mean, the first most basic reason is that God is spirit, and, and we're humans. God, God is invisible spirit. So we just we can't see him with our physical eyes. In fact, Jesus is going to say later on in the Gospel of John that God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. We'll unpack a lot of that later on. What does that mean? But fundamentally, we can't see God because he's spirit. He is invisible. That's the claim of the Christian worldview. There is an invisible spiritual God who exists, who's apart from his creation, who is the source of it, who has made it. The, the other reason is because of our own sinfulness, our own turning in, our own selfishness, our own bentness on our, bent inness on ourselves, that we actually don't want to see God. We're actually going to spend a lot more time on that next week, so I'm going to leave that there for just a moment. But fundamentally, we can't see God because he is spirit, but this is the beauty of the gospel, friends, and the beauty of John's claim here is that the God who is spirit became flesh, that he took on humanity because he wanted us to be able to see him. He wanted us to be able to know him. So he actually becomes a human being without ceasing to be God. So here's, here's kind of the, the bottom line, the, the impact of this passage this morning. That if we want to find God, because he's spirit, because we've separated ourselves from him, if we want to find God, he has to come to us. He has to become flesh. He has to make himself known to us. Because of that, friends, every other religion in the world, every religious system, it's essentially a magic eye poster. It's just saying that you know, if, you, if you look hard enough, if you follow the right technique, then you on your own will be able to see this. Christianity says that, that's not the way it works. We don't, we are blind. Like, we cannot see the picture at all. And in fact, better than just being able to see the picture, the picture has actually come to life off of the page and met us and healed our blindness. And again, even if you don't consider yourself religious, even if you're, I'm actually not interested in finding a God. I just want a kind of a good life here and now, and I, I just have a hard time buying this whole spiritual realm thing anyway. We're all looking for, for meaning, for experiences of beauty, for transcendence, of awe, or even just maybe minimally, just distraction from the pain or the boredom of the same old, same old. So, so the religious message is try harder. Follow these techniques and you'll be able to know God. The, the kind of the message of modernity or materialism is just look inside to find meaning. Like, that you have everything that you need for meaning. You just got to look inside, discern who it is, what your longings are, and live those out. And again, Rebecca is saying, again, what John has said here is that we can't know God by looking in. We can only know him through Jesus. 
And if, and if we don't get this, you know, I think sometimes if we're like, well, I just look in, that's where I'll find true freedom. But often when we look in, we either find ourselves enslaved to just not our deepest desires, but our strongest desires, our whims at any moment, or we're just trapped by what is popular in our cultural circle with our group of friends, with our particular cultural moment at that particular time and place. But those things are always changing, right? It's only when we look out, when we look to Jesus, that we can find true freedom that isn't constrained by our desires or impulses in the moment or by our just momentary cultural location. So ultimately the thing that we can do, the only thing we can do as people is to embrace all of Jesus for all of us. Each and every one of us, no matter what you've done, receive all of Jesus for all of you. No matter your your perspective, your cultural background, your political affiliations, um, your orientation, your marital status, your prison record, whatever it might be. Embrace all of Jesus for all of who you are. Because only in that place of embracing him for all of who he is, for all of who you are, every part of your life, can you know what it means to be truly and fully human. Because when God took on flesh in Jesus, he didn't just pay our debt for sin. He also like sanctified, made holy our humanity. That we as these kind of humble creatures made of dust are now holy in a way because God himself has taken on a body, become a human like us. And Jesus will be a human into all eternity, making it clear that our humanity is not an obstacle to be overcome, but rather is the destiny that each one of us has that we will spend forever with Jesus in a new heavens, in a new earth, in bodies with beating hearts and breathing lungs, just like his. Theologian T.F. Torrance says, in the very act of assuming our flesh, the word sanctified and hallowed it. All of God for all of us, to make us fully alive, more human, when we embrace Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and truth because God is full of grace and truth, and he is God. But so often we believe the lies. We believe the lies that God isn't real, he doesn't exist. Uh, we believe the, God, the lie that, yeah, there is a God that exists, but he doesn't love me, or he doesn't care about me. Or that he doesn't actually want good things for me, or that he's holding out on me. And those are the very same lies that have been around from the very beginning. They get packaged in different ways. They may sound different in 21st century Kansas City than they did in the garden, but they're the same lies. And the reality is, if we ignore God, if we continually to push him away, if we don't, don't receive him as he's revealed himself in Jesus, he will give us what we want. He won't ultimately force himself on us against our will. It's actually a terrifying thing because he will give us what we want in the end if we don't want him. But if you believe the truth, not the lies, if you come to receive Jesus for who he is and who he claimed to be, you can come alive. Reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia stories and the Lion, the Witch, and the Word of these beautiful stories for children. And the land of Narnia is, is trapped in this, this winter. It's always winter and it's never Christmas. What a great description, right? Always winter, never Christmas. This is a terrible place, frozen. But when Aslan comes, when the lion comes to set that world free, wherever he goes, the snow starts melting. 
And when he enters into the the palace of the white witch, all those animals and creatures have been turned to stone. He breathes on them and they come to life again. That's what John is saying has happened in Jesus, that he has come to the world that was always winter and never Christmas and things started melting and people started coming alive and you can too. So this week, I'd I'd encourage you to pray this prayer wherever you're at in your relationship with Jesus. Just say, Jesus, help me come alive in you as I take the risk, as I risk doing what you have said to do. Because that's where faith meets reality is when you look at what Jesus has said about himself, what he's called you to do in love and obedience, and you say, I'm going to step out, I'm going to risk, I'm going to do what you've said, Jesus, and I'm going to trust that you're going to meet me there. Jesus, help me come alive as I risk doing what you say to do. Attend to the beauty and the longing in your life, in your heart. Let that beauty and longing draw you to him. For he has come to us, and Jesus has made God known to us by becoming one of us. And this is beautifully expressed in Annie Porter's poem called Music. Anne Porter is a, is a Catholic poet. Some say she's one of the greatest religious poets alive today. Uh, and she wrote this poem. I want to read it to you. It's a little longer, but listen to it. It's so powerful. She talks about her experience of music and the longing that she had. Listen to this. She says, when I was a child... I once sat sobbing on the floor beside my mother's piano as she played and sang, for there was in her singing a shy yet solemn glory my smallness could not hold. And when I was asked why I was crying, I had no words for it. I only shook my head and went on crying. Why is it that music at its most beautiful opens a wound in us? an ache, a desolation, a deep as a homesickness from some far off and half forgotten country. I've never understood why this is so, but there's an ancient legend from the other side of the world that gives away the secret of this mysterious sorrow. For centuries on centuries, we have been wandering, but we were made for paradise, as a deer for the forest, When the music comes to us with its heavenly beauty, it brings desolation, for when we hear it, we half remember that lost native country. We dimly remember the fields, their fragrant windswept clover, the bird songs in the orchards, the wild violets in the moss by the transparent streams. And shining at the heart of it is the longed-for beauty of the one who waits for us, who will always wait for us in those radiant meadows yet who also came to live with us and wanders where we wander. You cannot know God without Jesus. And the good news is not only that he waits for you, but he came to wander where you wander. Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this gospel together this year, this testimony, this witness, this eyewitness account of who you are and what you did and what you're doing. Would we be made alive in new ways? Maybe for the first time, maybe in ways that we have felt dead, we felt so distant from you. We're asking, Lord, would you make us alive afresh as we risk doing what you've called us to do? We pray this in the name of our King, 
and rescuer, the one who has wandered where we wander. In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.